podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the show on Friday, the 16th of December. We are just two days away from the World Cup final. We have two games left in this World Cup. Tomorrow, Morocco will take on Croatia in the third and fourth place playoff. I think for Morocco, the opportunity to win a bronze medal is enormous. They go home heroes regardless they're going to be without at least two key players. But I do think they'll have something about them to go and win that game. Croatia haven't already brought home a silver medal last time. I don't think we'll be as motivated. And we might see them them rotate quite heavily. But I think it should be a good game. And then obviously Sunday, we get the final. It is Argentina. It is France. We have just recorded our World Cup final preview on Anfield Index. Uh, That will come out either today or tomorrow. So keep an eye for that one, the World Cup Daily. Myself and Carl Matchett. We went an hour because it deserved an hour. It's a World Cup final. It's important. Uh, We also picked our players of the tournament, our young players of the tournament, our managers of the tournament, and predicted who we think will win the Golden Ball. So give that a listen when it comes out. Uh, For now, I do want to talk a little bit about France and about Didier Deschamps in particular because I've been very critical of him. I'm not the biggest Deschamps fan as a manager. I think he's too cautious by nature. But 
you can't argue with the fact that he won a World Cup and now he's on the brink of winning another World Cup. He's in another World Cup final. So you, you can't disparage him too much. And he does have a decent track record, obviously, at club level as well. He did a good job at Monaco. He went to Juventus and got them promoted from Serie B back into Serie A. Of course, he got into a Champions League final, it's worth pointing out, at Monaco. Um, with Marseille, he won a league title. He's been with France 10 years. And he's been very fortunate to have maybe the most talented generation of footballers ever come along together. Like we talk a lot about golden generations. And I think if you look at France and the players age, say 24 and below, I think we might be looking at the greatest generation of players any country has ever produced. Like the current squad, you've got, Axel de Sisi, who's very, very talented. Jules Conde, who's outstanding. Guendouzi, who's good but not great. Chouameni, who is great. Mbappe, who might be an old-timer. Kolomouani, he's, he's good. He's not great, but he's good. Yusuf Fafana is a good player. William Saliba is hugely talented. Dale Upamecano is, on his day, excellent. Ibrahima Kanate is outstanding. And Eduardo Camavinga is, for me, a sensational midfield player. Christopher Nkunku would have been in the squad. Now, he's 25, just turned 25. So you could actually go to 25 and include him because he is outrageously talented as well. And then you look at the under-21 group and the talent that's there, Benoit Bodiashile, Malo Gusto. Castillo Lukeba, the young centre-back, Mohamed Simikin, the centre-back at, at Leipzig, Maxence Kakare, Kefren Turam, Quadio Kone, Michael Alise, Amin Guri, Ahmad Kalimundo, Amin Adli, Rayan Cherky, Hugo Ekatiki, like the list goes on. Enzo Lafi has become a, a big talent this season. Rayane Nuri, Tangoy Nianzu, Wesley Fafana, who might well have been in this squad if not for injury. Musa Diaby of Bayer Leverkusen. And the list goes on and on. And there's more coming behind them as well, which is the really, really scary thing. So it's not just that France have sustained a great level since the last World Cup. They've had a whole new generation come through and there's more to come. And They could win back-to-back World Cups here for the first time since Brazil did it in 58-62 and only the third time ever after Italy did it in 34 and 38. This is an incredible achievement, like a genuinely incredible achievement if they can pull it off. But you're also looking ahead and thinking they they might do this again. They they might win three in a row. They might win four in a row. I, I didn't even mention Bubakar Kamara, uh, Kamara, who's a fantastic midfielder. Alban Lafont as a goalkeeper. Consider the players that are missing from this squad at this World Cup, who are injured. Mike Mannion, he wouldn't be starting, but he would be the best backup goalkeeper in the competition. Presno Kimbembe would likely be starting at centre-back. N'Golo Kante, Paul Pogba, both likely be starting. And Karim Benzema. Now, some of them have worked in their favour. Benzema being injured was probably a good thing. Because this team functions better with Olivier Giroud. And it's notable that they didn't replace Benzema. And the reason they did that was so that he'd be eligible to win a World Cup medal. So technically, he's still part of the squad. And he will be entitled 
to a World Cup winner's medal should they win the competition. But you look at the team that won it in 2018 and the squad that won it, and I think they've turned it over quite well. Lloris is still there. Pavard is still there, though no longer a starter. Kimpembe is still in the squad, but or still around, but obviously got injured. He would have been a starter. He wasn't back then. He would be now. Varane is still a starter. Samuel Umtiti is gone. He has played very, very little. He, he has not played for France in three years. He made only five appearances after the last World Cup. They've moved on from him as he had injuries and lost form. They just moved on from him. Pogba would still be in the squad. But, you know, he's 29, as is Varane. Pavard and Kimpembe are 26. Griezmann is still in the squad. He's 31. This is probably his last World Cup. And he's in the squad on merit because look how well he's playing. Thomas Lamar was 22 at the last World Cup. Looked like he'd be a staple for the next decade. He's not in the squad anymore. Giroud is still there. Mbappe, obviously. Dembele, obviously. Quarantine Tolisso. No longer part of the picture. An outstanding midfielder, only 27, but injuries and loss of form, he's gone. Kante is still in the picture. Blaise Matuidi is gone. Steven Nzonzi's gone. Steve Mandanda is in the squad because of injuries, and that's the only reason. Uh, Adil Rami is gone. Nabil Fakir is only 28, not in the squad anymore. Jibril Sidibe, 25 years of age, gone. Florian, uh, 29 years of age, rather. Florian Tauvan, gone. Lucas Hernandez still in the squad. Benjamin Mendy in prison. And Alphonse Ariola. So they've turned the squad over quite well. They've moved on from players once they've lost form, once they've had injuries. They haven't stuck to the same group of players in the way Belgium have. And I think it's admirable that Deschamps has moved to bring forward a lot of these younger players like I've highlighted earlier. I think to his credit, he has done a very good job with this squad. Now, in European championships, they have not done as well as they should have done. They should have won 2016. Everybody knew they should have won in 2016. And Deschamps got some big calls wrong in the final. By his own admission, he got things wrong in the final. At the last Euros, they just had a bit bit of a disaster. But his style of football and what he wants them to do, if you notice, has become kind of the preeminent style in World Cups. Like, if we look at what Deschamps wants to do, he, he wants his team to play with a slightly deeper line. He wants his team to be compact. He wants his team to draw pressure and spring on the counterattack. And you might look at some of their players and think, well, that's a complete waste. I know there's a lot of people that look at their campaign at the last World Cup and think that they were some sort of free-flowing attacking team, but they weren't. They weren't at all. In this competition, France's best performances have come when they've had less of the ball. In the last World Cup, their best performances came when they had less of the ball. The only games in which they had more of the ball at that World Cup in the group stage against Australia, they had 55% of the ball, didn't play particularly well and needed a late on goal to beat the Aussies. They had less of the ball against Peru. They had more of the ball against Denmark and couldn't create anything. They had less of the ball against Argentina and beat them. They did have more of the ball against Uruguay, but Uruguay forced them to. They had less of the ball against Belgium and less of the ball against Croatia in the mid-30%. Because that's what he wanted them to do. Absorb pressure and then spring the likes of Mbappe and Griezmann on a counterattack. And with Matuidi and Kante, who can run for days and days and days, he was able to play that kind of counter-attacking basketball style. This time around, 
that they've done very much the same thing. They opened the tournament against Australia. They had more of the ball because Australia wanted the ball less than them. Then they played the Danes. They made Denmark have more of the ball. Denmark don't want to have the ball. They played Tunisia. They had most of the ball and they lost. But once we get into the knockout phases, they take on Poland. They have a little bit more of the ball, but they take advantage of the fact that the Polish defence is quite slow. They had significantly less of the ball against England. They had less of the ball against Morocco. They forced Morocco to have the ball. Morocco didn't want the ball. Morocco, like France, want to be a defence-first team. And if we look at the quarterfinals and semifinals of this World Cup, it's the teams who didn't have the ball who win the games. Croatia had fifty-nine, sorry, 51% of the ball against Brazil. That game ended in a draw, remember. Croatia won on penalties, but the game ended in a draw. Argentina had less of the ball than the Netherlands. Obviously, that game ends in a draw as well, but Argentina advanced. Morocco had far less of the ball against Portugal, 26%. And then France had less of the ball against England, 42%. So Croatia were the only team that advanced having had more of the ball. And it was it was like 55 point, sorry, 50.5 to 49.5. Even if you look at the round of 16, the USA had more of the ball against the Netherlands. It was the Netherlands who went through. Now, Argentina did have more of the ball against Australia. And France, like I say, had more of the ball against Poland. England dominated, but that was what England wanted. England wanted to have the ball. You've you've seen, like, Morocco against um, Spain as well, 23% of the ball. We saw Japan against Spain and against Germany have so little of the ball and beat them. Teams are playing like this more in the World Cup. And a lot of that is the Deschamps blueprint from four years ago. So uh, we may need to reassess Didier Deschamps as a manager. And not because of the fact that he might win back-to-back World Cups, but because of the impact that he's had on how so many countries are now approaching these tournaments and the success they're having playing that way. I think, to his credit, he has implemented a style that works, that's very, very effective, that does get the best out of a lot of his players. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And he's been able to do it while and and maintain it while turning the squad over. He's dealt with the big egos in the French squad, especially four years ago when he had Pogba. This time, injuries intervened. He didn't have to deal with Benzema. He didn't have to deal with Pogba. And it probably makes it easier to convince your team to play a certain way. Because remember, he hasn't had to convince Mbappe. Because France's system is 10 players and him. They defend with 10 players. Goalkeeper, back four. Four of the midfield five, the 4-3-1. Four of the midfield five and Giroud. Mbappe isn't asked to be part of that defensive unit. He'll press a fullback. He'll hound a centre-back, but he's not asked to defend behind himself. He's instructed to stay on the halfway line and provide the outball. And that has given Deschamps the full buy-in of Mbappe. If he, if he was asking him to do more, he might not be getting the same reaction, the same results. We've seen Mbappe with PSG throw the toys out of the pram when things don't go how he wants. So Deschamps has managed him brilliantly. He's managed Griezmann brilliantly. Antoine Griezmann, over the last few years, 
his club career has gone into the toilet. The move to Barcelona, the subsequent failure at Barcelona, the struggles when returning to Atletico Madrid. But through it all, Deschamps stood by him and made him made him aware that he was still a, a very vital component of this team. And we've seen for Atleti in the last few months, Griezmann's form improve. Usman Dembele is another one. Like he's had a nightmarish time at Barcelona, has turned it round since January, hasn't played particularly well in this tournament, but Deschamps is sticking with him and giving him that belief. And all it will take on Sunday is Usman Dembele to have a good Usman Dembele game, and that could be enough to decide the final. Adrian Rabio is another one. Like, think of Rabio four years ago. He wasn't named in the squad. He was named in the the backup group, like the, the training squad. If someone gets injured, you're in. And he said no. And most managers would have said, well, that's it for your international career. You're done. But not Deschamps. He punished him, he gave him stick, and then he gave him carrot. And he brought him back in slowly. And through this tournament, Adrian Rabiot's been their best midfielder. And one of their three best players after Griezmann and Mbappe. He's kept faith with Olivier Giroud. When the world clamoured for Benzema, he kept faith with Giroud. He obviously started Benzema in the Euros, and look how it went. Start Giroud, two World Cups. Sorry, I should say two World Cup finals. But, you know, he's done an excellent job at managing the players, managing the egos, turning over the squad, and then dealing with this raft of injuries that they've had. You take a starting centre-back, the starting left-back, two starting midfielders, and a Ballon d'Or winner out of any other team, and they, they're not reaching the quarter-finals. But he's got this group with a next-man-up mentality. Oh, he's out? This is my chance. I'm going to step in, and I'm going to prove I'm good enough. Look at the situation at centre-back. So... President Kimbembe would have been the starter next to um, Rafa Varane. Varane comes into the tournament with an injury. Kimbembe gets injured and goes out. No problem. Starts the tournament with Kanate and Upamecano. Varane comes back and he is... uh, Upamecano has been first choice, but he has done some rotation there. And he's kept Kanate involved whether it was coming off the bench, the start against Tunisia. And the reason for that is that when he came to a semi-final and Upamecano was unavailable, he had a locked-in, bought-in Ibrahima Kanate to put into the team, who wasn't coming in cold, who experienced World Cup football. And Kanate was their best player against Morocco. He was absolutely outrageous at the back. Significantly better than Upa Meccano had been against England. And Kanate now looks to that final and thinks, that's my spot, I'm going to be starting. He might not be, but because of how he's managed Upa Meccano and Kanate, neither is going to kick up too much of a fuss if they don't start. Because they've been involved. And if Upamecano doesn't get the start, he can't really complain too much. I think massive credit has to go to Deschamps. Like I say, he's very fortunate in in the fact that, you know, you don't get many Kylian Mbappes. But then to get all the rest of the talent that's available to him as well is remarkable. Genuinely remarkable to get all of that say, 25 and under talent. And if we include 25-year-olds like, sorry, like um, 
Christopher Nkunku, we must also then include Usman Dembele. We must also include Teo Hernandez and Marcus Turam. And when you look at the age profile of the squad, like Lloris won't be there in four years. I wouldn't imagine Varane will be. I don't think Griezmann will be. Giroud won't be. Jordan Jordan Veritois won't be. Mandanda won't be. Benzema won't be. And that's probably it. So there's 19 of this squad that could go to the next World Cup. Pavard would be 30. De Sisi would be 28. Kunde will be 28. Guendouzi will be 27. Chouameni will be 26. Mbappe will be 27. Dembele will be 29. Muani will be 27. Fafana, 27. Rabio 31. He'd be the oldest in the squad. Saliba, 25. Upamecano, 28. Coleman, 30. Lucas Hernandez, 30. Theo Hernandez, 29. Ariola 33. So he'd be the oldest, but Rabio would be the oldest outfield player. Um, Kanate will be 27. Kamavinga, 24. And Turam, 25. Kimpembe, I think, is 25. He's 27. He's older than I thought. So he'd be 31. So he could still be around. And Kunku will be 29. And then you've got all those other players that I mentioned earlier who aren't in this squad, who will all be, you know, early to mid 20s. Plus, whatever is coming behind them. And you know, there's going to be some special, special talent coming along behind them. Like, you just know there's going to be. And the one name that always kind of stands out when you look at the um, the French underage teams is Warren Zaire Emery, the 16-year-old midfielder already making his mark at Paris Saint-Germain. Five appearances for PSG's first team this season. At 16. He's played in the Champions League. At 16. For one of the biggest and strongest clubs in the world. He'll only be 20 at the next World Cup. And there's the likes of Matthias Tell. Who's at um, AC Milan. Or at Bayern Munich now. Like that's another one. Uh, who's just Desiree Du of Wren, another one. Like these these kids are, there's more and more and more of them coming along and, and they're just phenomenally talented. Matthias Tell at Bayern, he came through the Wren Academy, as did Desiree Du, as did Kamavinga. Like that's one academy that's produced three likely squad members of the next World Cup in a couple of years, and God knows what else they'll produce in in the interim. That's just one academy. PSG's academy is a talent machine, as is Leon's. Like I mentioned, Malo Gusto and Malo Gusto and uh, Lukaba, whose name I've just butchered. Um, th- they're likely to be in the squad. Like there's so much strength and depth in every position. The only position they haven't produced a ton of talent in is right back. But Kunde's very good there. He's he prefers to play centre-back, but he's very good there. Pavard is decent there. Gusto is going to be the one, though. He is exceptionally talented. And you could argue goalkeeper, but, you know, Mike Mannion's not, not a bad first choice next time around. Albin Lafont won't be a bad first choice if it's him. Maybe Ilan Melier takes a big step forward. And you know there's a couple more to come. So... This could be an era in which France dominate the World Cup like we've never seen before. It really could. They could very well win it on Sunday. And in four years, they'll probably go into the tournament as favourites again. And not just because they're back-to-back champions defending their title, but because of that squad and, and what it may be in four years. Now, there's talk that Deschamps might stay after this tournament. His future has been, you know, talked about endlessly. Um, I wouldn't blame him for staying. 
I genuinely wouldn't blame him for staying because why wouldn't you when you could manage all of this talent for another four years? He's only 54, remember. Diddy Deschamps is only 54. I know a lot of people would like to see Zidane in that job and it would be interesting. But if you're Deschamps, I mean, you'd, you'd have to think long and hard before you walked away. Because the future, the past has been great. The past four years have been great. The next four years are going to be even better, I think. So, yeah, I wanted to give him his flowers because I've, I've hammered him a few times. Um, but he has done he has done a good job. He really has done a good job. Needs to do better in the next Euros. Needs to do better in the next Euros than he did in the last Euros. But look, at the end of the day, quarterfinals in 2014, the final of Euro 2016, won the World Cup in 2018, could well win the World Cup again this year. We'll allow him, you know, the stinker that he turned in at the last Euros. We'll allow him the mistakes in the final against Portugal if he wins another World Cup. Um, speaking of the World Cup, um, Gianni Infantino, who is an absolute clown. Like this, this guy might be the worst we've ever had running FIFA, and we've had some absolute stinkers. He said the format for the twenty twenty six World Cup, which will have forty eight teams, which I'm sorry is far too many is to be reconsidered by FIFA. They will look at whether to have 16 groups of three teams or 12 groups of four. Such an absolute nonsense. An expanded men's Club World Cup will be launched in the summer of 2025, featuring 32 teams and running every four years. FIFA is planning to use the March International Windows in even years to organize friendly tournaments between nations from different confederations. That just sounds like a mess. And a new Women's Club World Cup will also take place every four years. It has to be FIFA's mission to organize events in new countries. This is how they're trying to make out that they've had the World Cup in Qatar for the good of Qatar. They had it in Qatar because they got bribed to have it in Qatar. And everybody knows it. Again, he's sort of talked over the um, the issue with the deaths of the migrant workers. He's he's bought the excuses of the Qataris and and just refused to accept. The reality. This World Cup has been positive from a non-football perspective. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Africa's time has come. That's fair. Everyone is free to express beliefs in a respectful way. That's fine, but there needs to be tolerance as well, and there hasn't been. Um, we're really convinced of the growth, yada, yada. This World Cup has been an incredible success on all fronts. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think it has. The main one being the fans, the behavior, the joyful atmosphere. The atmosphere has been shit for the majority. It has been shit. It is, from a World Cup perspective, it is the worst World Cup ever in terms of atmosphere. So the joyful atmosphere. He's basically trying to say that because they banned booze at games, there was a better atmosphere, which is nonsense. Um, in terms of the fans, there's a tiny amount of fans there. A tiny amount. Very few Europeans travelled over for the World Cup. Stadiums were half full in the group stage and even the round of 16 games. And those that were there were largely being paid to be there. Or were there out of curiosity. Or were there to watch their own country and went to games involving other countries just to have something to do. Gianni Infantino is currently in his first term as FIFA president. Each president is allowed three terms in total. And it has already been confirmed that he will have a second term after being unchallenged for that role. I mean, this is what's wrong with FIFA. Just allowing this pillock 
to to run the show completely unopposed. Um, he did come out and claim that this has been the best World Cup ever. And I'm sorry, but no, it hasn't. Not even a little bit. Not even slightly. The calibre of football has been well below par. And that's been the case at the last four World Cups. But I would say at this one, maybe slightly better than Russia, worse than Brazil, about the same as South Africa, definitely worse than Germany. It's the World Cup that reminds me most of Japan and South Korea. What's made this World Cup has been some of the drama and the storylines. Morocco, for example. Croatia getting to another semi-final. Messi. But the calibre of play on the pitch has been sorely lacking and the atmosphere, like I say, was shit. So he can try and dress it up however he wants, but this is this will be a largely forgettable World Cup for the most part. Morocco's success is is one thing we'll remember, and we'll remember who won, particularly if it's Messi, because it's the kind of crowning achievement uh, for his career. But yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not the best World Cup ever. Or anything close to it. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about West Ham. We have some bits of news. And we'll have the gossip and we'll be done. I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, non-football, uh, I've just seen that Boris Becker has been released from prison after serving eight months for hiding 2.5 million worth of assets and loans to avoid paying debts. He was jailed for two and a half years after being found guilty of four charges under the Insolvency Act. He was released from prison and has flown to Germany uh, he's been deported from the UK, basically. Um, firstly, he was given two and a half years. Why is he out after eight months? Secondly, like, why is he hiding these assets? Oh, he was the declared... Oh, sorry, I should have read further. Um, he's lived in the UK since 2012. He was declared bankrupt in 2017 over an unpaid loan of more than three million on his estate in Mallorca. And it turned out he'd been hiding other de- other assets to avoid having to pay that debt. Um, he, he thought he could just go the bankruptcy route and get away with it. Um, so what an idiot. What an absolute clown. But why is he getting out of prison eight months into a two and a half year sentence? You and me wouldn't get out eight months into a two and a half year sentence if we owed two and a half, if we'd been uh, hiding two and a half million worth of assets. Anyway, West Ham United, currently 16th, 16th in the Premier League. This is, for me, the most disappointing team of the season so far. Liverpool, disaster. Chelsea, disaster. But this, this is appalling. This is appalling. 16th is unacceptable. They went out in the summer and they massively upgraded the talent in their squad. Naif Agard, an outstanding centre-back. Now, admittedly, he's been injured and he's missed most of the season. But he comes in. They make Areola permanent. They bring in Flynn Downs, quality midfield addition. Gianluca Scamacca, an outstanding number nine. Max Cornet, a very talented wide player. Tilo Carrere, a good centre-back. Emerson Palmieri, I'm not keen on. Lucas Paqueta. I mean, what a player. What a player. They don't lose anybody of importance bar Mark Noble, who's the club captain, but had been a negative 
impact player on the pitch for the last two years. They sell Isidy up, which I wouldn't have done, but they did. And they loan out uh, Nikola Vlasic, which I, I think was a mistake. I think they should have kept him, and I think he should be playing in this team. They start the season really poorly. Now, you can excuse them losing to Manchester City, because most teams will lose to Manchester City. Then they lose to Forest. They were a little bit unlucky. They did score, and it was ruled out for a foul in the build-up. Then they get dog-walked by Brighton. Absolutely slapped on their own pitch. 2-0 win for Brighton. It could have been four. It was just so one-sided. They go and beat Aston Villa 1-0. That was a good a good result to turn things around. Then they get a 1-1 draw at home to Tottenham. A game in which they were the better team, but unfortunately couldn't find a way to win the game. Then they lose to Chelsea. No real shame in that. But then they lose 1-0 to Everton, and they were awful on the day. Then they beat Wolves. Then they beat Fulham. Then they draw away to Southampton, and you think, okay, things are starting to turn around. They lose 1-0 away to Liverpool. There's no shame there. They beat Bournemouth. So you're thinking, okay, that's three wins in five and a draw. The only defeat was to Liverpool. So they've turned things around. They've, They've got back on the right track. And then they lose 1-0 to a mediocre Manchester United team. They lose 2-1 at home to Crystal Palace. And then they lose 2-0 at home to Leicester. And it should have been three. And you just, you have to wonder how this much talent has lost nine games from 15 played. And how they've only scored 12 goals. Now, they've only conceded 17, which is one of the better defensive records in the bottom half of the league. But they've only scored 12 goals. They went out of the EFL Cup to Blackburn. They've drawn Brentford in the FA Cup. Now, they're going well in Europe, to their credit. They got past Viberg 6-1 on aggregate in the qualification round for the Conference League. And they went 6-6 six for six in the Conference League group stage. They beat Stoya Bucharest, they beat Silkberg, they beat Anderlecht, beat Anderlecht again, beat Silkberg again, and then beat Stoya again. So they're going very, very well there. Um, Strangely, the draw hasn't been made for the next round, but, you know, it is what it is. I just, I don't understand how they're so poor this year because there's, there's so many good players. Now, there's a couple of problems. Let's start off with the goalkeeper. Fabianski isn't good. He was decent at his best. He's not good now. Ariola is a significantly better goalkeeper. But for some reason, Fabianski is still the number one choice for Premier League games, and Ariola plays in the European games. Now, remember, last year, they did quite well in Europe, got to a European semi-final. And that wasn't enough to convince Moyes to put him in the team regularly. Whereas Fabianski's throwing in goals and still getting the pick. So the first thing they need to do is they need to make Ariola the number one, the number one choice. I think this team needs to move to a back three. Because if I look at a back three of Tilo Carrer, Kurt Zuma, and Naif Agard, I think I have everything I want in a back three there. Now they don't have ideal options at fullback or wing back. Their left-sided options are Cresswell, who's well past his best, and Palmieri, who I just I don't think is is all that good. The right back options are Ben Johnson, who I do like. He's more fullback than wing back, and Vladimir Sufal, who's having a bad season, but might be more wing back than fullback. They've got some depth at centre back in Dawson and Ogbonna. You wouldn't be hugely keen on either, um, but you know they bring veteran leadership and all that good stuff. They do have a promising young defender in Harrison Ashby, and it'll be interesting to see if he gets much more run this season. But defensively, I think they need to look at addressing the either either the fullback or wingback spots. And if they're going to go back four, let's say they go Zuma Agard, Ben Johnson at right back, you'd be absolutely fine with, but they, they've got to buy a left back at some point. A good one, not not a Palmieri. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know why they paid so much money for him. I think they paid 14 million. Yeah, 14 million. 
he's just not good. He's just not good. But you get a, a good left back in there, and all of a sudden that back line looks really formidable. And then your your depth is is better. You know, Sufala's depth to Johnson, the, the other the two left backs they have as depth to whoever they bring in. And then a trio of Career, Ogbonna, and Dawson as depth behind Zuma and Agar. That's pretty strong. In midfield, Declan Rice is having an up-and-down season. He's getting an awful lot of praise for having some average games. And he is the captain of this team. And therefore, he's the one largely responsible for them being 16th. That's his job to sort that out, to get them more switched on on the pitch. Moyes can only do so much. Now, we'll talk about Moyes at the end. might be coming time for him to go. But Suchek is playing dreadfully and has since about the turn of the year. So he's had about a year of being quite poor. He's been overplayed. It's not all his fault. Um, Flynn Downs has been pretty impressive when he's played, but he hasn't played a huge amount. Uh, Connor Co- Coventry is a talented young player, but he, they're not sure if he'll make the grade as a starter. Uh, Paquette is outstanding, but he's had some injuries. Lanzini's talented, but injury-prone and inconsistent. And Pablo Fernandes has been quite good. There's there's undeniably a midfield that you can put together there. And like I mentioned earlier, Vlasic is somebody they should be using. So he could come back into that group as well. That's a talented group of players. They, w- they will need one more in there next to Rice. And in fairness, they're going to lose Rice in the summer. He's he's already been quite vocal. He's gone in the summer. Um, so they're going to need to buy two in midfield. But I think in January, you've got to go and get one. I think you've got to get somebody to replace Thomas Suchek. Now, Suchek, I think, is running his contract out as well. So you might look to move him on. But I think they've got to find somebody who can come in. It's the role they wanted Amadou Onana for. They've got to go and find someone that can do that role. And then in the summer, they'll have to replace Rice. But for now, go and get that powerful box-to-box player. Um, in attack, I, I, there's just loads of talent. Skimaka, Antonio, Cornet, Jared Bones having a poor year, uh, Ben Rama. These are all really good players. I think Moyes is holding this team back a little bit with some of the decision-making, such as playing Fabianski, such as continually playing Suchek such as not committing to playing a style of football that's going to get the best out of that excellent number nine that they've got, or where's number seven, uh, Skimaka. The the whole team should be focused around getting the best out of him and Paqueta. They're the two best players at the club. They're the two most talented players at the club. You should be building your team to get the best of them, and everything else is secondary. Be strong at the back and focus on getting the better of them. And you're going to be a top eight club at least, and potentially higher. Like, there's an awful lot of talent here. Now, Moyes is a good manager. It needs to be said, he is a good manager. And he he has done very, very well at West Ham since returning the second time. But the thing with Moyes is, and maybe the thing with West Ham, there's a ceiling on their ambition. Like, for example, West Ham are bringing Mark Noble back to the club as sporting director in January. I'm sorry, Mark Noble has never been a sporting director. He's never worked in any area of your front office. How is he going to be your sporting director? What qualifies him to be your sporting director? Because he went and did some course at Harvard? See... Moyes doesn't want a sporting director who'll overrule him, so they're putting in someone that he won't be overruled by. They're giving Noble a job because he's Mark Noble and he's you know a West Ham legend for being decidedly average for 15 years. The, the talent in this squad should be challenging for top four. Moyes doesn't have the mindset to do that. Now, I, I wonder if Daniel Kretinsky got full control of the club. Would he go a different direction? Sullivan and Gold are happy if they're in Europe and in the top half and not worrying about relegation because they just, they're in for the TV money. But I wonder with Kretinsky, is he 
is he the type that would really push the envelope? Now, I think he was a, a big part of why they had the uh, the aggressive approach in the summer. But he only owns, what, 27% of the club? So Gold and Sullivan retain 63% of the club. Uh, Albert Smith owns 8% and other investors own 1.1%. Sorry, 64% of the club, um, or yeah, 63.9% is what Gold and Sullivan own. So they are still the the majority owners, and, and I would imagine still the decision makers. They are the co-chairman. I, I do just, I, I feel like they, they and Moyes put a limit on what West Ham could become. And look, West Ham will be a stepping stone club for a lot of these players. The likes of Skimaka, the likes of Paqueta, they've joined that as a way to get into the Premier League and hopefully secure a move on after that. But you're a London club with great history. You're going to be a draw to players. And there's so much talent there. They've they've got to get this right. And maybe if Declan Rice was more committed to the West Ham cause, they would get it right. But he genuinely just doesn't seem to be fully committed to it. Like for for a club captain whose team are 16th to come out and say what he said in recent weeks to praise himself the way he has and then talk up going to Champions League clubs, that's an absolute disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. You'd never see, you'd never have seen Roy Keane do it. You wouldn't have seen Vieira do it. You wouldn't have seen John Terry or Steven Gerrard do it. And they were far greater players than Declan Rice will ever be. But he's believing a lot of his own hype now. And, uh, you know, he, he probably needs to be brought down to earth a little bit. Um, They'll be fine. They're going to stay up. I think in January they've got to go and look for one midfielder. I don't think they'll touch left back because they brought in Palmieri. But I think they need to commit to Ariola in goal. And I think they need to bring in a midfielder because had they got Onana and Onana Rice pairing in midfield, I think could have been outstanding. With him no longer an option because he went to Everton. Foolish move, by the way. Very, very foolish move. Um, someone like Quadio Kone could be a good fit for them. M- most likely available from uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Don't think he cost a huge amount. Though Newcastle alleged of interest, Liverpool alleged of interest. So the price might get driven up a little bit. But there's others out there that you could go and look at as well. Um, Fernando Santos has stepped down as Portugal manager following their exit from the World Cup. Eight years in charge. He won Euro 2016. So no matter what, you, you've got to say he had a successful tenure. They did win the Nations League, but the the Nations League is nonsense, so who cares? Um, I thought he got things right in this World Cup for the most part. He dropped Cristiano, which was the right move. Uh, His team just didn't turn up against Morocco, and Morocco were were so good that it it wouldn't really have mattered, I don't think, if they had. Um, So yeah, he steps down. It is believed that Jose Mourinho was the preferred target. We'll wait and see if that comes to pass. Uh, BBC have a World Cup quiz. Let's see what this is. Which team has been knocked out of the quarterfinal stage a record number of times? That would be England. Seven. Seven times they've been knocked out in the last eight. Uh, Cameroon's Vincent de Boubacar became the first player since Zinedine Zidane to do what in a World Cup match? Score and be sent off. Score a headed goal against Brazil. Or assist and score in a 3-3. Score and be sent off. Zidane scored and was sent off in the 06 World Cup final. So I would guess that. That is correct. A record number of cards were shown in the quarterfinal between Netherlands and Argentina. How many did he brandish? It was 18. The other options are 10 and 14, but it was 18 because the UK commentators made such a big deal of it. Um, how many current Premier League players have scored at the 2022 World Cup? 15, 20, or 25? I will say 
20? No, it is 25. 25 players have scored 38 goals. Julian Alvarez, the top Premier League scorer with four. How many additional minutes were played across the 48 group stage games? 312, 422, and five, or 563. 563 seems like the most random number there. It's also the biggest number, and I'm going to go with that. And that is correct. Um, yeah, it, it just had to be because there was games where there was 12 and 14 minutes, so had to be. Only three players have scored at the past three World Cups. Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and who else? Thomas Muller, no. Harry Kane, no. Sheridan Shakiri. Five World Cup goals for Switzerland. Fair play. How many managers... Oh, what, what do the managers of Argentina and France have in common? They both won league titles as managers. No, Scaloni didn't. They were previously teammates in Italy. Don't think they would have been. They'd be very different generations. They both played in the World Cup. Yeah, they played... Uh, Deschamps played in 98 and obviously won the World Cup. And Scaloni was in an Argentine squad in either... 06 or 10? 06, yeah. Uh, Argentine Ford, Lionel Messi equal Lothar Mateus's record of World Cup appearances when he started against Croatia, but how many matches they played in? It's 25. The other options are 20 and 30. It's 25. Messi will play game 26 on Sunday. Messi has scored in the last 16 quarterfinal and semifinal since the last 16 was introduced in 1986. How many other players have achieved that at a single World Cup? One, three, and five. I, I guess five. I, I feel like it's three. I, I feel like that's not something that's happened all that often. I'm going to go with five because I said five. It is five. Salvatore Scalacci, Roberto Baggio, Risto Stoichkov, Davor Sucker, and Wesley Schneider. I wouldn't have guessed Sucker or Schneider. Baggio has to be 94. I would guess Stoichkov was as well. Scalacci would have been 90. So Sucker would have been 98. And Schneider would have been 2010? Guess. How many goals have been scored by substitutes at the 2022 World Cup? Loads, I think. 20, 25, or 30. I'm going to go 30 because it's the biggest number. And that is correct. It is 30. That is a complete guess, but it is 30. Uh, which World Cup first did John Hardman Hart, achieve? I know this. he's the first man to manage, or first person to manage at a, a Women's World Cup and a Men's World Cup. Um, so, yeah, I know that one. Giancarlo Ramos scored the only hat-trick of this World Cup. How many hat-tricks have been scored in World Cup history? 45, 53, or 61? I couldn't tell you. Um, 63 seems high. Sorry, 61 seems high. I'll go 53. By complete fluke, that is also correct. I got 11 out of 12. I did guess at least four of them. Um, so no, I BBC, I'm not a sporting genius, I'm just quite lucky today. Uh, Real Madrid have signed 16 year old Brazilian prodigy Endrick from Palmieres. 16 years of age, Real Madrid have spent roughly 60 million pounds. This kid isn't allowed to move until 2024. It, it's outrageous, like. This obviously follows on from them signing Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr. Two deals that worked out. Uh, Vinicius Jr. worked out brilliantly. Rodrigo has had moments, but still is a bit inconsistent. But this is outrageous. Like, we just talked about the next World Cup, 2026. At the next World Cup, he'll be 20. At the 2034 World Cup, He'll be 28 and in his prime. He might play at the 2038 World Cup. Like, that's how young this kid is. 
he'll only be 32 in 2038. Oh, Jesus. He's a, he is he is outrageously talented. Outrageously talented. And this kid has been hyped since he was 14. Like, people have been talking about this guy since he was 14. So, you know, he is a special, special talent. Let's do the gossip. Chelsea are on the verge of signing Ivory Coast forward David Datro Fafana from Norwegian club, Norwegian club Molde for more than 10 million euros. He's very talented by all accounts. Arsenal are one of seven several clubs in talks for Michalo Mudrik. Um, yeah, very, very talented. Liverpool will have to pay 150 million euro for Jude Bellingham and 100 million euro for Enzo Fernandez. Uh, Jude Bellingham won't cost 150 million euro. Manchester City's future transfer plans involve trying to sign Jude Bellingham and Bakayo Saka. Saka, Arsenal will get Champions League for next season is my bet, which I think will lead to Saka signing a new deal. Because otherwise he is at a contract in 2024 and it would become an absolute war to get him. Um, the agency that represents Fiorentina midfielder Sofian Amrabat wants the Moroccan international to join Liverpool. Tottenham are ready to step up their efforts to sign Amrabat with Fiorentina wanting at least 50 million to sell him in January. He's not worth that. He's at a great World Cup, but he's not worth that. Atletico Madrid and Portugal forward Jeff Felix has been offered to Premier League clubs, including Arsenal and Manchester United, but he wants to join Paris Saint-Germain. That kind of makes sense. I don't know how he'd fit there, but it does kind of make sense. Chelsea were offered the chance to sign Felix for £86 million, and he could be an option for the Blues. No, he won't. They've, they're, they're signing in Kunku. You don't sign in Kunku and Jeff Felix. Um... Chelsea are also looking at Matthias Cunha and Memphis Depay. Wolves want to sign Cunha, but will have to fight off competition from a host of Premier League rivals. I think that's a good move for him. Um, I think he's a really good player. Yusofa Makoko is close to signing a new contract at Borussia Dortmund, despite interest from Chelsea, Manchester United and Liverpool. For his development, it's probably the best thing for him to do. Manchester United and Newcastle face competition from Real Madrid for Cody Gakpo. I, I really doubt it. I really, really doubt it. Juventus midfielder Adrian Rabio is out of contract in the summer, and despite offers from the Premier League, he would prefer a move to Barcelona. Uh, it is sport, so obviously they will tell you that everything in, in Spain is better, so you just kind of ignore it. Chelsea are going to push again to try and sign Rafael Leao as Graham Potter looks to replace Armando Bruyne. So, so in order to replace a young number nine who barely plays, they're going to sign an older wide forward for 80 to 100 million. That's yeah, outstanding journalism there by whoever put that nonsense together. Everton remain in a strong position to sign Mohamed Kudus after his impressive World Cup. Um, they could have signed him in the summer and he turned the move down, so I don't believe that they do. West Ham are moving on to other right-back talents after it became clear they have no chance of persuading Middlesbrough to sell Isaiah Jones. Interesting. Um, they should bring Spurs and see if they'd give them Jed Spence even on loan for six months. If they want a wing-back. Sevilla have placed a £26 million price tag on Yassine Bono. I don't think he's much good, to be honest, so I think that's ridiculous. Uh, Napoli and South Korea centre-back Kim Min-jae, who is a target for Manchester United and Tottenham, says he is disturbed by the potential links. Do you know what? He would be incredible as the middle centre-back in Antonio Conte's three. He would be absolutely incredible in that role. Romero, Kim Min Jae, and someone like Hincapié if they can't get one of the, the big two that they want. Oh. And his mate is there. Like if if Young Min Son wants to do Spurs a solid, get on the phone. Uh following UEFA and FIFA receiving significant backing in their battle to block the creation of a European Super League, 
confidence among potential Liverpool investors has increased and the club's takeover price has also risen. The club's takeover price has not risen. It has not changed. It is what it is. And Football Insider wouldn't know what was going on if John Henry rang him and told him himself. So shut up, Wayne VC, you imbecile. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a pleasant weekend. Don't do anything silly. And enjoy the World Cup final. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.